Good evening. Come on. Good evening. Great to see you guys. Great to be here. Thank you, Phil, and everyone for the warm welcome. As he mentioned, I'm the pastor at Bethany Eastside, and it's my privilege to be here tonight. I got to say hi to the people watching online because it includes my mom and my dad and my grandma. So hi, everybody. Good to see you. As uh, you may have heard, uh, Richard is uh, not feeling super great. He lost his voice somewhat over this last two weeks. It's well-deserved, though. Uh, the man just teaches like you can't believe, right? And so he was teaching up at Malibu, the Young Life Camp in British Columbia. He went up there twice, and then he came and did our uh, lead pastor retreat. And the guy was just using his voice like you just couldn't believe. So he needed a break. That's why we're here. So you get the lead pastor merry-go-round today at Bethany Green Lake. So you're welcome. Uh, would you please pray with me? Mighty God, we've heard your word, and now we ask that you would allow us to step into your word. It's a privilege to be gathered here together. It's a privilege to be part of this incredible family known as Bethany Community Church. What a gift. We pray your blessing on Pastor Richard and ask uh, for restoration for his voice. And we thank you that in this time together tonight, we get to listen for your voice. And may your voice come through loud and clear. May the words of my mouth and the things that we consider in all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, a rock and a redeemer. Amen. Okay, uh, I don't know you guys very well. Some of you probably don't know me at all. So I would like to show you one of my favorite pictures. Would you like to see one of my favorite pictures? Okay, here it comes. Yeah, that was a great, oh. So let me introduce you. Starting on the left, that is Amelia. She is 14 months old. In the middle is Hadley. She will be four in October. And on the far right in those sweet goggles is my son, Will. And he will be six this summer. These three little people are an amazing part of my life. My wife, Jill, who's uh, not in the photo, uh, ran the Seattle Rock and Roll Half Marathon this morning, so I'm super proud of her. And I know stuff about each of the people in my family. I know stuff about my kids. I know when they were born. I know, you know, their birthdays, and I can maybe sort of fuzzily remember how big they were when they were born, and all that kind of stuff. I know about them. I know their morning routines. I'm on morning duty at our house, so uh, when I get up in the morning, uh, I have a few precious minutes to drink my coffee and kind of be alone. And then my son Will is usually the first to wake up, and he comes in to see me. And one thing I know about Will is that he needs like a minute or two. He just needs a couple of minutes to kind of collect himself. He doesn't want to talk about breakfast just yet. Anybody else kind of like that? Like, don't talk to me about breakfast yet. I just need a minute. Okay. So y'all would get along well with Will. Hadley and Amelia, when they get up and they... Well, the baby, I go get her, but when they come in, I can tell you exactly what they want for breakfast, and they could have it immediately, and they could have it every single day, and some of the rest of us are like this. Hadley could have frosted mini-wheats every single day and be completely happy, and Amelia could eat her weight in pancakes. When you don't got a lot of teeth, pancakes are awesome. I know things about them, and I'm seeing things form in them. I'm seeing their characters start to be shaped. I'm seeing them relate to one another, learning how to play together, learning how to treat one another. And I know that my role as their dad is one of the most important roles I will ever have in all my life. But what if that was it? What if something changed, and I wasn't able to put my emotions into my relationship with my kids? What if I knew facts and figures and stuff about them, but I didn't really know them or I didn't really show affection to them? This can happen sometimes. There are accidents, traumatic brain injuries that allow the emotional center of our brains just to shut down. 
It can happen. What if that were to happen? And what if all I knew about my children was just some kind of cold data? Like, yeah, Hadley weighs, you know, X amount of pounds, and Will is, you know, this tall, or, you know, they have this many books in their rooms, or just these kind of things. Picture, if you work in programming, picture the screen that you sit in front of all day long. Picture that kind of data, that kind of input. What if that's all I could use to connect with my kids? I could tell you about them, but I had no emotional connection to them, no response when they'd run up and give me a hug, or when they would say, Daddy, I'm so glad to see you, just blank. That's a sad state of affairs, right? That is a sad picture of what our relationship could be like. One of the reasons I'm excited to talk tonight about this passage from the book of Ephesians is I think it addresses this very same problem in our relationship with God. And I think as a church, Bethany, because we tend to be intellectual, because we like to use our minds, we like to engage the mind in the life of faith, we can struggle, like that scenario I just depicted, we can struggle to make that great jump from the head to the heart when it comes to our relationship with God. Some of you know tons and tons about the Bible. Some of you have advanced degrees in theology. But where's the heart? Where is the emotional connection to our loving God? And I ask this as someone that does not have this figured out by any means. And I will admit fully at the top, this is a false dichotomy. We need both. We need to love God with our, mar- with our minds and with our hearts. It's not an either-or scenario, but sometimes we treat it like that. Sometimes I treat it like that. Maybe you do too. Now today, I won't audaciously claim that we're going to settle this or fix this, but I think the text has a lot to teach us, including that this journey from the head to the heart is a lifetime journey. So if you don't got this right right now, you can turn to your neighbor and say, I don't got it right now. That's Okay. Nobody said that to one another. You can say it to one another. I don't got it right now. Today's text is about how the love of God connects us, not just in the mind, but in the heart. If you are an outline person, you can turn to your notes and you can write down an outline. I've got it for us. Three different headings to talk about this. We're going to talk about the context of tonight's passage. We're going to talk about knowledge beyond knowledge, this kind of hyperbolic phrase that Paul uses later on in the passage. And then we're going to talk about this great and wonderful promise that we're going to leave here with the words on our lips, and that is, God is able. Can you say that with me? God is able. Say it like you believe it, Bethany. God is able. We're going to walk out of here believing that for the week ahead. I'm excited. The thesis for us is God is able to love us extravagantly so we can simply love him. God is able to love us extravagantly so we can simply love him. Now let's step into this together by turning to our context. If you have your Bibles, I welcome uh, you to open it up to Ephesians chapter 3. That's where we'll be spending most of our time tonight. If you're just joining us, like Phil mentioned, we've been in a sermon series on the book of Ephesians, and we're coming up on the end of the first half of Ephesians, roughly. First half is about what is the church. Second half is about what's it like to be in the church. How are we supposed to relate to one another as the people of God? Ephesians is a letter written to New Testament Christians, and it's about identity. And so today, I want to review very quickly two of the key principles that at least at Bethany Eastside we talked about last week. The two themes are from far off to family, that's one, moving from far off to the family of God, and two is that Christ is our cornerstone, right? So these are the two subheadings under that first heading. This past week, uh, all the teaching pastors from all the Bethany churches got away. We went to a cabin uh, on a lake, and we did our annual teaching team retreat. It was great. 
We pray through the sermon series for the next year. We kind of work on how we're doing. We build each other up as a team. And of course, we're all studying as well for this week's sermon, right? Like Sunday's still coming. We got to preach. And so at different uh, points during the weekend or during the week, you know, one of us would be in the kitchen studying over there. Another person would be over by the fireplace. I was out on the patio by the pool. There was a pool. It was awesome. And at one point, I love this because I love this guy, Brad, the pastor from Bethany Ballad. We're all studying the same passage together. He opens up the door, right? I'm sitting outside. He sticks his head out and he just yells, hey guys, we're good. We're in. I figured it out. I got it. And we're all like, thanks, Brad. We're good. And what he's referring to is verse six. So turn there with me if you would. Verse six. This is one of the most powerful things about this passage. Having a hard time finding my Bible. Verse 6 of chapter 3, Paul is talking about this mystery that has been revealed in Christ. And he says this in verse 6. The Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and shares in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's what Brad was saying. We're in. We made it. We are in. This is one of the most incredible pieces of DNA that was put into the church through Jesus Christ at its inception. Through Jesus, through faith in him, people are in. This is not religion. A religion says, keep the rules, jump through these hoops, obtain righteousness through the law, and you're good. What we find in Jesus Christ is the law is important, understanding who he is is important, but God's amazing plan for humankind is we're in through Jesus Christ. Paul is telling his audience, as someone who very precisely understood keeping people out, keeping people in, remember he was a zealot, he was a Pharisee, Paul says to his audience in this passage, no matter what your past or your background or your culture or your heritage or your track record or your baggage, you have a place at the table in the family of God from far off to family. That's one of the most amazing themes early on in the letter of the Ephesians. And that comes into play in our passage today. We'll get back to that in just a minute. So that's our first major theme, kind of coming from these earlier portions of Ephesians. The second major theme we got to talk about is how Christ is our cornerstone. We see this uh, back in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. If you want to just flip there with me, I'll read them for us. Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, right? From far off to family. You were built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the, finish it with me, cornerstone. Say it louder, cornerstone. That is Jesus Christ. That is how the church works. When Christ is our cornerstone, we can get a lot done. If you go uh, further along in chapter three, you see this playing itself out in the way that Paul talks about uh, his life in Christ, how he is called to this incredible mission to reach the Gentiles. He says this in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3. This, the mission that God has given to me, is in accordance with the eternal purpose that he's carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. Paul understands this message. Why? Because he has been brought in from the cold. He was far away from God. He thought he was chasing down God. He thought he was pursuing God with his zeal and his passion and his fervor. And instead, he had turned into this bloodthirsty, brokenhearted zealot who could never be satisfied. And then Jesus broke into his life. And then he was knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus. And then 
his humility kicks in. And we hear this in chapter three, verse eight. Listen to this. Paul writes, although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace, this mystery that the Gentiles are included, this was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of the glory of Christ. Paul knows his place in the story. And it's an important place. Now, why do we need to mention all this at the top? Where's this going? Why does this matter? The main reason we need to understand the context is that these two themes fueled the effectiveness of the early church. We know that during this time in history, post-resurrection, during the early days of the church, it took off like a rocket. People started to be coming into faith. We see this in the book of Acts, number upon number upon number of people who were being reached, who were being brought in from far off to family. And the way that that happened was not through Paul saying, well, this is the church of Paul and another apostle saying, this is my church and this is my church. No, they kept it rooted and grounded in that cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Not only did they keep the main thing the main thing, they started to change the culture around them. We'll get back into this later on in the message, but Christians were doing things in the Roman Empire that nobody else was doing. Christians were caring for the poor and the marginalized because Jesus told them to. Orphans who had always been cast aside in Roman culture, now had a place to belong because Jesus told them to. People began to look around and see this Pax Romana, remember this phrase, Roman peace, how it was achieved actually through violence and bloodshed. They began to look around at that and go, you know, that's not right. We don't need to be doing that because Jesus told them to. The church helped people, they brought them in from far off to family and they did so operating out of the cornerstone of Jesus. By these efforts and through the power of the Holy Spirit, the church began to grow and its credibility stood out among the marketplace of ideas of the Roman culture, the educated, erudite, top of the food chain Roman culture. Are you seeing a connection to our day? Are you seeing a connection to where we are right now, friends? in the great city of Seattle, in this great moment in our history, what is the credibility of the Christ that we follow? In the marketplace of ideas, of all the different things that people could be doing, all the different ways they could be trying to pursue faith, what is the credibility of the Jesus you and I follow? Is he one that we sort of tip our cap to and, you know, pray quickly before a meal? That's fine. Do we present a Jesus that's kind of private, that we sort of keep to ourselves? Or do we believe that when we pray, Jesus walks across the room to us and he talks to us and he's with us? Do we try to act like he would act, to treat other people the way he would want to be treated? That's my favorite definition of justice, by the way, treating other people the way God thinks they deserve to be treated. You want to be involved in the work of justice? Start there. Do we, do we believe that this Jesus that we claim to follow is alive, really alive, or just a group of ideas? That's the difference between knowing him and walking with him. And if you want to be a part of doing something wonderful to deepen and broaden and proclaim the credibility of Jesus Christ in our day to our city that desperately needs to hear it, you should serve. You should be a part of what God is doing through whichever Bethany church you call home. Here at Bethany Green Lake, August 18th, mark your calendar and go serve right over there. Look, right over there. Daniel Bagley Elementary School. That's our school. If you go here, that's your school. Your kids go there. Whether they are your kids or not, they are your kids in Jesus Christ. You need to be there August 18th. If that don't work for you, come on over to Eastside, August 26th. We got all kinds of schedule options for you. 
We're going to be doing a serve day at my kids' elementary school. I would love for you to come and be a part of that. And here's why. The literature that I've studied, a particular book called Sticky Faith, about how to help kids follow Jesus Christ for their entire life, says that you've got to serve with them. Kids need to see grown-ups serving next to them. Grown-ups need to see kids serving next to them so that we keep moving forward together as an intergenerational community. You've got to be a part of that. You want to be a part of that here at Green Lake? Talk to Phil. Talk to Chris. You want to come to the east side? Come talk to me. It's going to be fun. So that's the context, that's the challenge. We need to be bringing people in from far off to family. God has a place for you. He has a place for me. He has done this through grounding his community in Jesus, the cornerstone, and we're called to continue in that work, believing that Jesus is real, that he is vital, and that he is with us. And now, we gotta do a little poetry analysis. So all the English majors in the room, right? Like, get it warmed up. Here we go. We're going to read verses 14 through 19, the beautiful prayer that Phil read for us earlier. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through the Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. As you are being rooted and grounded in love, I pray that you, Bethany, you, may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I have been studying that passage all week. It is still head spinning for me, so don't worry. We will get through it. Here's the word that I would offer to us to try to find our way through this. All these incredible things, the depth and the height and the breadth and just this amazing language, the one thing that cuts through all of it and gives us a plumb line to follow is love. It's love. In verse 17 and 19, this particular text, the word love is agape. Agape love. That's the kind of love that God gives to people, that he gives to human beings. Agape love, as one author put it, is the love that seeks the flourishing of the object upon which it is directed. Isn't that wonderful? Agape love seeks the flourishing of the object upon which it is directed. God's love for us in Jesus Christ is like that. He doesn't just look at us and love us and keep us where we are. He looks at us and he says, I want you to flourish. And if you follow me, I will lead you into that. Agape love seeks the flourishing of the object upon which it's directed. That's Paul's prayer for the church, is that we would encounter this agape love, that the church would be built up as a loving family, and that the strength to do all the things he's called us to do, to go across the street to Bagley, to go bless and serve people in our work, to take a part in our global partners trips, all these things are done out of agape love, where we seek the flourishing of what God has put in front of us. That, I think, is how we make sense of this incredible prayer that Paul writes about, the agape love of God. So, how do we make that work in real life? How are you going to make this work when you go to work tomorrow? Look at verse 19 with me. The final clause has an implication. The final clause says this, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Why would we need to be filled Because there's a part of us that's empty. Let me say that again. There is a part of you and me, no matter how long we follow Jesus or whether we are just trying to check this thing out, that is empty. And Paul is not the first person to pick up on this. The author of Ecclesiastes wrote this centuries before Paul came on the scene. God has set eternity in the human heart. 
Ecclesiastes 3.11. There is a part of your heart and my heart that is set, oriented, built, constructed around this eternity, this sense of God being with us. And whatever we do to try to fill up that emptiness, oh man, it's gonna go bad. It's gonna go bad. We try, we try to fill it with degrees, with expertise, with programs and sales tactics and brands that we like and families and houses and other good things that we escalate and make into ultimate things. And all the while, eternity is sitting in our heart and we lose sight of it. We keep looking for answers and we lose it. And our friends and our coworkers who are far from God are looking so fervently for the answer. Will you be there to help them make that connection? First, we have to get there ourselves. You can't give what you don't have. So let me offer two brief suggestions about how to step into this agape love reality, how to address the eternity that is in our hearts. Two suggestions are this, simplicity and worship. Simplicity and worship. First, simplicity. How many of y'all know A.W. Tozer? A.W. Tozer, he's a writer, knowledge of the holy, wrote some really great stuff. One of the things I love about Tozer is he didn't go to high school, didn't finish high school, didn't go to college, wasn't a seminary grad, but he wrote these amazing, wonderful words that have been such an encouragement to me. The book of his that a friend of mine recommended to me that I would recommend to you is called The Pursuit of God. And he has this great quote about, I think, how do we love God? How do we get at this simplicity piece? Listen to this. We must simplify our approach to God. If you like to live in your head, if you like to think about stuff, listen very carefully to what I'm saying, what Tozer's saying. We must simplify our approach to God. We must strip down to essentials and they will be found to be blessedly few. We must put away all effort to impress, ooh, and come, don't miss this phrase, come with the guileless candor of childhood. The guileless candor of childhood. If we do this without doubt, God will respond. Strip down to the essentials, you guys. What are the few things that you really need that are essential for you in your pursuit of life with Christ? Fellowship, being a part of a church, reading the scriptures, prayer, fellowship with other Christ followers. That's, that's pretty good. Those feel like essentials to me. I think we can also apply this point about the guileless candor of childhood. And this has just been such a challenge for me. Whenever you walk into work, whenever you walk into a conversation with someone in your life, how often are you putting on that hat of guile? Of just trying to make it seem like you got it all together. Trying to make it seem like as you walk into your office at Microsoft, as you walk into the law firm, you are the subject matter expert in your field and you are bulletproof. That's fine, but you got guile. And don't apply that to God. God does not want your guile. He will, he will pierce through it. He will help us through that. His Holy Spirit will work us into that place where we can really be with him, where that guile is taken down. But I am so convicted at reading this that so many times in my life, I step into a meeting or I say something and I go, oh, I wonder how that sounded, huh? And there's tact and then there's guile. And I far too often veer into guile. Maybe I'm the only person in the room that does this. I don't know about that. But what about removing guile from our relationship with God, removing our veneer of knowing what we're doing, knowing what we're talking about. The way I picture it is, is I've got some really great long-term friendships, guys I've known a really long time. We've been friends since seminary. And if I ever showed up to one of those times with my friends, I'm going to meet them or going to lunch with them, and I just start talking, 
Like I got it all figured out. Like I got it all together. Those friends who really know me will just look at me and go, come on, man. Like what? Like it's just me. We're just talking. Like why you got to do the thing? Anybody else know what I'm talking about here? Like you, come on, y'all get this, right? Okay, somebody can say amen. Okay, there we go. Put away your guile. There cannot possibly be guile. That will simplify the way that we are trying to move toward Christ, moving from the head to the heart, trying to make that love real in our lives. Secondly, worship. You gotta be here, guys. I've challenged my congregation the last couple weeks as the weather gets nice, as summertime rolls around, when you are in town, be here. I know it's gonna be beautiful outside, but when you are in town this summer, be here so you can worship, so you can be with people who love Christ and are here to love you. And the challenge I would put on top of that, this is from my own heart as well, is that when we show up to worship, are we showing up with the expectation that we are gonna have something good going on in our brains, that we're gonna kind of be awakened intellectually, or do we have the conviction that something's gonna touch our hearts, that we're gonna be moved emotionally when we worship? I don't come into worship all that often with that expectation, but based on this text, I'm convicted that I need to. God, would you open up my heart to come in and be a part of what you are doing here at Bethany? And would you touch my heart in a way that I don't get to control? Guys, that's a challenge for me. And all of us, I believe, who follow Jesus Christ a little while have had those experiences where we've shown up for a message, we've shown up for worship service, we've come here for sing, and we didn't know it, but oh my gosh, God had something for us. He had a word for us. He had a way that we needed to be changed. And I hope that we will be coming into worship every week expecting to be moved. All right, so that's the first two points. God is doing amazing work by keeping the cornerstone central, by allowing us to build our lives around him. Paul is praying for this church, for the agape love of God to come and be reality for them. And as we wrap up, I want us to read this benediction at the very end of Ephesians 3. Listen to verses 20 and 21. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations. I want to focus on the phrase, God is able to accomplish abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine. Some of your translations may say it this way, immeasurably more, immeasurably more. God's dreams for you and me are beyond our comprehension. Now that's kind of an esoteric thing to say. I get that. I want this to land in my life and in your life in a way where we can really picture this. So go back to the original audience of this text. Who would have been the recipients of the first, this letter to the Ephesians? It would have been people like the disciples that Jesus ran into when he was walking along the lake. Remember this? He's walking along the lake. He sees these guys fishing. He comes up to them and says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they drop what they're doing and they come. They don't go to seminary first. They don't go to college. They don't do any of that. They just go follow him. They see miracles. They watch people get healed. They watch him die. They feel the weight of that moment and then they see him resurrected and instead of shaming them for their doubts, he sends them in his strength. And these were ordinary fishermen. They had no idea what they were stepping into. They had no idea that God's dreams for them were so big and so vast that it would change the world. Close your eyes for a minute and picture the nearest hospital to your house. Wherever you live, where's the closest hospital to you, right? You probably drive by it, see it from the freeway. Did you know that a lot of the hospitals, not all of them, but a lot of hospitals were started out of a tradition of faith? 
started by a church, maybe the Catholic church, maybe another church, but the origin of hospitals and centers of medical care can often be traced back to the early church. If you were to take one of those disciples, one of those scraggly fishermen, starting out with Jesus, and you were to walk him or her into a hospital, walk him into the UW, walk him into Evergreen over near where I live, walk him into any of the modern medical facilities we have, and you say to them, this is what you helped build. All these blinking lights, all these fancy machines, this place where people are healed from cancer, you helped do this. Do you think they had any idea? Do you think they had any clue? No. But that's what's so great about this promise from God. God is doing immeasurably more through scraggly fishermen than we could ever imagine. So how about us? How about our day? We can't picture what the hospital is down the road, but God can. And he sees us using that for his glory. The original disciples had no idea about the kind of change through medicine. They had no idea about the kind of change that was coming politically on the horizon. Think about this. They lived in the Roman Empire, the most terrifying military force the world had ever seen, stretched from Spain to Iraq, down into Africa, covered so much of the world. How could that possibly change? How could the politics of that state ever be moved? Well, one day it did. One day people stopped showing up for the gladiator games in the Colosseum in Rome because they started to be convicted that violence was not okay. One day, the emperor of Rome said he's a Christian and Christians were no longer to be persecuted. This is hundreds of years after the life of the earliest disciples, but think about that. Could they have ever imagined just a couple hundred years from the days that they followed Jesus that the empire that they didn't know what to do with, that they were so tired of being oppressed by, would be transformed and changed completely? Could they ever have perceived that? No, but God is able. God is able. And if you are especially vexed, like I often am during this political moment, remember that God is able. Whatever is getting your hackles up, left or right, remember this moment, God is able. Transformation is coming. His kingdom is coming. God is able. Apply this to your week ahead. Think about your schedule, think about your coworkers, think about students you're gonna go be with at your school, think about parents that you're gonna see on your block. Pick the biggest, most difficult puzzle that you can think of, the person you cannot solve, the coworker you can't figure out, the boss that you're afraid is gonna email you in the morning and just picture them in your mind and write over them these wonderful words, God is able. Say that with me, God is able. There is nothing coming at you this week, Bethany, that God is unable to allow you to step into with his courage. He wants you to be a part of something in those vexing relationships, otherwise you wouldn't be there. He's got something for you to go do. And if it doesn't come together like you want, if you don't find that peace with your coworker, if you don't get a new boss, well, God didn't think you needed it. And you're gonna be okay. Because God is able. You can say it with me one more time, friends. God is able. Whatever little thing you got going on, I'm trying to figure out this scheduling thing with my family in Texas later in the summer, we're trying to celebrate a big anniversary. It's like stacking marbles, y'all. It's like trying to get everybody's schedules together. That's been my thing this week, and I'm going, God is able. God is able. Whatever you are facing, whatever you are confronted with this week, God is able. And really, that's the church. The church is a group of people who look at one another and say, I hear you, God is able. God is able. He is leading us forward into deeper and deeper connection between the head and the heart. So no matter how intellectual you are, 
no matter how emotional you are, he is able to move you to that place where he wants you to be in his kingdom. And I hope you'll think with me this week about that phrase, the guileless candor of childhood. And move that into your discipleship. Move that in to the places where you need just a little bit more simplicity between you and the Lord. One of the most wonderful things we can do together as a church is to celebrate communion because of its simplicity, because of its beauty. And so as we finish our time together in worship, I'm gonna invite the band to come join me up here. And I wanna pray and invite all of us to come now to the table to this simple meal that Jesus prepares for us. Would you pray with me? God, you are able. You are so incredibly able to do abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. And we get so trapped thinking that our little dreams, that our fears, that our insecurities, that there are these mountains and we could never get through them. Well, you took down an empire. You changed the world. You gave orphans a place to belong. You gave hope to the hopeless, families to the fatherless and motherless. And now, oh God, we pray that as we come to your table once more, no matter how many times we've come to receive communion, that the simplicity of this moment, bread and juice prepared for the people of God, that it would be a moment of nourishment for our souls. Set apart this time, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen.